Good morning, everyone. As you know, the Feast of Trumpets pictures for us a crucial step in the plan of God for the salvation of mankind. For 6,000 years, mankind has been allowed to go his own way for the most part and write in blood and tears the lessons of his own misrule apart from God's commandments. The Feast of Trumpets pictures Jesus Christ being sent from heaven to execute God's judgment on a rebellious mankind and to establish God's government on the earth in place of man's governments. The Bible refers in many places to the second coming of Jesus Christ, and it tells us that his coming will be announced by the powerful blast of a trumpet, the seventh in a series of events symbolized in the book of Revelation by seven trumpets. The Feast of Trumpets is contained in the symbolic trumpet blasts of Revelation, culminating in the seventh trumpet, which signals Christ's return to the earth. And among the places in the Bible where the seventh trumpet is mentioned is Revelation 11 and verse 15, Revelation 11 and verse 15, it says the seventh angel sounded and there were loud voices in heaven saying the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ and he shall reign forever and ever. So notice the seventh angel sounds and signaling that the kingdoms of this world at that time will become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And the 24 elders who sat before God on their thrones fell on their faces and worshiped God, saying, We give you thanks, O Lord God Almighty, the one who is and who was and who is to come, because you have taken your great power and reigned. The nations were angry, and your wrath has come, and the time of the dead that they should be judged, and that you should reward your servants, the prophets, and the saints, and those who fear your name, small and great, and should destroy those who destroy the earth. So, here in the, these verses that we read is summarized what the seventh trumpet signifies in terms of its prophetic meaning and there are essentially three major objectives that are discussed here that will be accomplished as the symbolism of the seventh trumpet is fulfilled. The first of those three major objectives is that Christ will return to the earth to establish his authority, his rule over the earth. Secondly, at his return, he will judge the nations and execute his wrath on those who actively oppose him. And then finally, the third objective that is discussed here is that at his return, Jesus Christ will reward the faithful, those who have been faithful in the ages leading up to his return. In today's sermon, I want to discuss in more detail what the Bible teaches about the 
fulfilling of these three objectives. Christ coming to establish his government, his executing of judgment over his enemies, and the rewarding of the faithful. So first let's discuss Christ coming to rule the earth. Over in Daniel we read a prophecy, Daniel chapter 2, and verse 29, Daniel 2 and verse 29, Daniel was explaining to King Nebuchadnezzar the meaning of a dream that he had had, and this dream was actually evidently inspired by God to reveal certain prophetic events to Nebuchadnezzar through this dream and then through Daniel's uh, interpretation, which was inspired by God. And in verse 29 of Daniel 2, Daniel says, As for you, O king, thoughts came to your mind while on your bed about what would come to pass after this. So this is a prophecy for the future. And he who reveals secrets is made known to you what will be. But as for me, the secret has not been revealed to me because I have more wisdom than anyone living, but for our sakes who make known the interpretation to the king and that you may know the thoughts of your heart. You, O king, were watching and behold a great image. This great image whose splendor was excellent stood before you and its form was awesome. This image's head was of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its belly and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. You watched while a stone was cut out without hands which struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were crushed together and became like chaff from the summer threshing floors. The wind carried them away so that no trace of them was found. And the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. So this was the dream that Nebuchadnezzar had had and the vision that he saw in that dream of this image with the head of gold and the chest and arms of silver, the belly and thighs of bronze, and the legs of iron, and then finally the feet, partly of iron and partly of clay. And then this stone that came and struck the image and smashed it to pieces, and then it was blown away and scattered by the four winds. Daniel went on to explain verse 36, this is the dream. Now we will tell the interpretation of it before the king. You, O king, are a king of kings. For the God of heaven has given you a kingdom, power, strength, and glory. And wherever the children of men dwell, the beasts of the field and the birds of the heaven, he has given them into your hand and has made you ruler over them all. You are this head of gold. Now Nebuchadnezzar was the king of the what is called the Neo-Babylonian or Chaldean Empire. And he had conquered many nations surrounding the area of the Middle East around uh, the capital of this kingdom, which was Babylon. And he'd conquered many other countries, 
including Palestine, as well as other areas of the Middle East and Asia and parts of Africa. But the influence of this kingdom actually extended much further than that. And in a sense was a world ruling kingdom. It was the most powerful kingdom, the most influential kingdom on the earth at that time. And Nebuchadnezzar had been made the, the head of this kingdom. And so this was the first in a series of great Gentile kingdoms, which were to be established and successively rule over the earth in various eras leading up to the final culmination of what is discussed in this prophecy. And it began with this era of the Gentile kingdoms as they're discussed in this particular prophecy, began with Nebuchadnezzar in the 7th and 6th centuries B.C. But after you shall arise another kingdom, he said, verse 39, inferior to yours, then another, a third kingdom of bronze, which shall rule over all the earth. And the fourth kingdom shall be as strong as iron, inasmuch as iron breaks in pieces and shatters everything, and like iron that crushes, that kingdom will break in pieces and crush all the others. So these are a series of what are called, in a sense, world-ruling kingdoms. That is, they had worldwide influence and were the most powerful and influential kingdoms of their day. Verse 41, whereas you saw the feet and toes, partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, the kingdom that shall be divided yet the strength of the iron shall be in it just as you saw the iron mixed with ceramic clay and as the toes of the feet were partly of iron and partly of clay so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly fragile so this is speaking of the last era of this final kingdom in this series of four kingdoms and it will be composed as it says symbolically here partly of iron and partly of clay the iron symbolizing the strength and the power of this kingdom but also mixed with clay now iron and clay do not really mix together well if you take iron and try to blend it with clay what you have is something that's going to shatter and break and not hold together for very long and that's what it symbolized. This will be a, a fragile union of diverse peoples that will be the final culmination of this kingdom as explained in this prophecy. In verse 43, he says, As you saw the iron mixed with ceramic clay, they will mingle with the seed of men, but they will not adhere to one another, just as iron does not mix with clay. And then in verse 44, it says, In the days of these kings says the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed and the kingdom shall not be left to other people. It shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms and it shall stand forever. So this is the stone which smashed the image. The image representing the Gentile kingdoms of the earth in this succession of world ruling empires. Finally the stone representing God himself, Jesus Christ, which will break in pieces and consume these kingdoms. And his kingdom will 
succeed them and absorb all of the kingdoms of the earth. Verse 45, he says, Inasmuch as you saw the stone was cut out of the mountain without hands, that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, the great God has made known to the king what will come to pass. This dream is certain and its interpretation is sure. Now, one of the things that we can have confidence in and will help us to have faith in the fulfilling of God's plan is that much of this has already occurred. This was prophesied at the time of Daniel about six centuries before Christ and the only one of these four kingdoms that had come into existence at that time was that of Nebuchadnezzar himself. But it was uh, followed in succession just as Daniel prophesied by these other kingdoms, the Medo-Persian Empire, the Grecian or the Greco-Macedonian Empire as it's sometimes referred to, followed by the Roman Empire. And then there has been a series of successions of the Roman Empire, resurrections of the Roman Empire, uh, leading up to our time. The final resurrection of the Roman Empire, and the, the Bible tells us there would be a succession of seven resurrections of the Roman Empire. The seventh one will be accomplished by ten rulers who will join together in a unified kingdom under what is called the beast in the book of Revelation. Revelation 17 and verse 12, Revelation 17 and verse 12, it says, The ten horns which you saw, and this corresponds to the ten toes that we read about in Daniel chapter 2, the ten horns now horn in the Bible. The horn was often used in ancient symbolism as a symbol of strength and power or royal authority. And so these horns represent, as it says here, ten kings who have authority and power. The ten horns which you saw are ten kings who have received no kingdom as yet, but they receive authority for one hour as kings with the beast. And this will occur just prior to the coming of Jesus Christ. And it says, These are of one mind, and they will give their power and authority to the beast. So they will be unified under this super king, you might say, who is referred to here as the beast. And these will make war with the Lamb, and the Lamb will overcome them. For He is Lord of lords and King of kings, and those who are with Him are called, chosen, and faithful. So Jesus Christ will overcome these kings as they make war with Him or against Him. In Daniel chapter 7 and verse 13, Daniel sees in this chapter a vision of Jesus Christ being given authority. Daniel 7 and verse 13. I was watching in the night visions. Behold, one like the Son of Man. Now this is a reference to Jesus Christ, who, who one of whose titles was and is the Son of Man. And 
So this is one like the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. He came to the Ancient of Days. And in this prophecy, the Son of Man here is referring to Jesus Christ. The Ancient of Days in this particular case is referring to the Father, God the Father. And it says they brought him near before him. Then to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away. And his kingdom, the one which shall not be destroyed. So Jesus Christ is being given a kingdom which will be an everlasting and eternal kingdom. In Romans 1, we see that Jesus was given power after his resurrection or at his resurrection. Romans 1 and verse 4, it says that, in the speaking of Jesus Christ, that he was declared to be the Son of God with power according to the Spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. Now, earlier here it speaks of the fact that Jesus Christ humanly was of the seed of David, but he was only a human being. That is, he had, of course, been God prior to his becoming a human being, but then he was changed into flesh, became a human being. And like all human beings, he was weak. Elsewhere we read that he emptied himself of his divine glory as a human being. So he did not have the kind of power as a fleshly human being that he was given when he was resurrected. And through his resurrection, he was declared to be the Son of God with power. In Matthew 28, notice what Jesus said to his, some of his disciples. And this was after his resurrection. Matthew 28, verse 18, he said to his disciples, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. So this was after his resurrection, and he said to them, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. So at the time of his resurrection, Jesus Christ was handed over authority over the entire creation in heaven and in earth, or on the earth. In Ephesians 1, we read more about the authority that Jesus Christ has as the resurrected Son of God. In Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 17, it says that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, and this was Paul speaking to the Ephesians and, and expressing his interest in they're being blessed with godly wisdom and so forth, as it says here, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Him, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of His calling and what are the riches of the glory of His inheritance in the saints and what is the exceeding greatness of His power toward us who believe according to the working of his 
mighty power, which he has worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Now, among the things that this tells us is that we have the potential to share in some of this power that has already been given to Christ. But it tells us that this has already been accomplished in Christ and it occurred when he was raised from the dead and seated at the right hand of God. Far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in that which is to come. So the authority of Jesus Christ over the entire creation is something that is permanent and will exist from now on. And it says in verse 22, He put all things under His feet and gave Him to be head over all things to the church, which is His body, the fullness of Him who fills all in all. In Philippians chapter 2, we read more about the authority that was given to Christ following His resurrection. Philippians 2 and verse 9, Therefore God also has highly exalted Him and given Him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus Christ every knee should bow, of those in heaven and of those on earth and those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So we see here in these verses the fulfilling of the prophecy that we saw in Daniel chapter 7. In Hebrews 1 and verse 8, To the Son, he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. So notice that Jesus Christ is God. He was a human being, and in a sense is a human being, but he's also God. And his throne, it says, is forever and ever a scepter of righteousness, is the scepter of your kingdom. Scepter is a symbol of royal power and authority. You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with oil of gladness more than your companions. So Jesus Christ has been given authority over all creation. And this includes the earth as well as the heavens. But Jesus Christ is not fully exercising that authority yet as far as the earth itself is concerned. Satan is still the god of this world. And the nations of this world have not yet been made subject to Jesus Christ. Mankind is still living in rebellion against God and God's laws and is not proven faithful to God or willing to submit and yield to God's word. And so even though Jesus Christ was given this authority, he has not actually taken it yet in the sense of taking into his personal control and direction the affairs of mankind on the earth. Now that doesn't mean, of course, that he's not in a, in a general sense exercising authority in certain respects, but he is not directly ruling over the nations. He is still allowing 
Satan to influence mankind, and he's still allowing human beings to go their own way in opposition to his will. But the Bible tells us there is a day coming when Jesus Christ will physically return to the earth. And at that time that he will take over the reins of government over the earth and that he will rule the nations as king of kings and lord of lords from Jerusalem. And there are many prophecies about that in the Bible. That's a major part of what is symbolized by the Feast of Trumpets. In Jeremiah 3 and verse 17, Jeremiah 3 and verse 17, it says, At that time, and this is the time following Jesus' return to the earth, at that time Jerusalem shall be called the throne of the Lord. So notice Jerusalem will be the throne, the place where the throne of God is on the earth. And all nations will be gathered to it, to the name of the Lord, to Jerusalem. No more shall they follow the dictates of their evil hearts. So Jesus Christ is going to reign on the earth, and his throne will be in Jerusalem. And it says, no more shall the nations follow the dictates of their evil hearts. Verse 18, in those days the house of Judah will walk with the house of Israel and they shall come together out of the land of the north. And this is talking about their captivity, which will have occurred prior to Christ's coming. And at his return, one of the things that he will do is liberate the peoples of the physical nations of Israel from captivity, those who are left of them. And they will come out of the land of the north to the land that I have given as an inheritance to your fathers. In Zechariah chapter 8, Zechariah chapter 8 and verse 1, it says again the word of the Lord of hosts came saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I am zealous for Zion with great zeal, and with great fervor I am zealous for her. Thus says the Lord, I will return to Zion. Zion being a name associated with God's throne in Jerusalem or the throne of David in Jerusalem and in terms of the future with God's throne. And it says, thus says the Lord, I will return to Zion and dwell in the midst of Jerusalem. Jerusalem shall be called the city of truth, the mountain of the Lord of hosts, the holy mountain. In verse 22, goes on to say, Yes, many peoples and strong nations shall come to seek the Lord of hosts in Jerusalem and to pray before the Lord. So Jesus Christ will be living and dwelling physically, bodily in Jerusalem after his return. Thus says the Lord of hosts, In those days ten men from every language of the nation shall grasp the sleeve of a Jewish man, saying, Let us go with you. For we have heard that God is with you. And so as is implied here in these verses, the nations are going to be re-educated. They're going to be educated in God's ways and not the ways in which the world is educated now in ways of doing evil and living contrary to God's way of life. God is going to teach the entire world to live his way. 
according to his laws. In Psalm 22, and again, there are a number of prophecies about that aspect of Christ's rule. In Psalm 22 and verse 27, it says, All the ends of the world shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations shall worship before you. It was always God's intent from the very beginning that all people should worship Him. Even when God began to work with Israel in ancient times and led them out of Egypt, the purpose was bigger than just the people of Israel. It was so that they would become a nation that God would work with as an example for the rest of the world. And then ultimately that all nations would come to know God and worship God. It didn't work out that way because Israel did not do what they had promised to do in obeying God, so they never really fulfilled at that time their calling, but they will in the future. And ultimately all nations on the earth will worship, as it says here, before God. And verse 28, for the kingdom is the Lord's and he rules over the nations. In Isaiah chapter 2, Isaiah chapter 2 and verse 1, we read, The word that Isaiah saw the son of Amos concerning Judah and Jerusalem, Now it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the Lord's house, now mountain is often used in the Bible as being symbolic of a nation or kingdom, it says, the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established on the top of the mountains. So ruling over the other nations of the earth and shall be exalted above the hills, the smaller nations, and all nations shall flow to it. Many people shall come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways and we shall walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. So Jesus Christ is going to establish a system of education which will encompass all nations of the earth and they will be taught his word, his laws, his way of life. And in verse 4 it says, He shall judge between the nations and rebuke many people. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into printing hooks. The nations have never known how to live together in peace, have been utterly unable to accomplish that, even though there have been many attempts down through history for nations to establish some system where they could avoid war, but none of those efforts have succeeded. But Jesus Christ is going to establish peace on the earth and all the nations will be taught to live together in harmony and peace under the authority of God. And it says, Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. So all of the military academies are going to be shut down. There won't be any military academies. There won't be any West Point or Annapolis or Air Force Academy or any similar school teaching men how to make war and kill each other. Instead, there will be 
a system where people will be taught to live in peace and where their efforts will be turned into productive and peaceful endeavors which will benefit all of mankind. The nations will come to see the futility of their ways and the emptiness of their approach to life. Over in Jeremiah chapter 16, Jeremiah 16 and verse 19, O Lord, my strength and my fortress, my refuge in the day of affliction, the Gentiles shall come to you from the ends of the earth and say, Surely our fathers have inherited lies, worthlessness, and unprofitable things. So notice the nations are going to confess the utter futility of their former ways. And they will forsake those traditions which have been a part of their culture for thousands of years. Will a man make gods for himself which are not gods? And yet this is what mankind has been doing from the time of Cain and Abel, from the time of even Adam and Eve. Therefore, behold, I will this once cause them to know, I will cause them to know my hand and my might, and they shall know that my name is the Lord. So the nations will come to see that God is the creator of the universe. He is the supreme authority over all creation. And they will confess that their ways are futile and empty. And they will learn a different way of life. So this is one of the objectives that will be accomplished by what is signified by the Feast of Trumpets, the coming of Jesus Christ to the earth to establish His rule, His authority over all mankind. But for this to happen, for this authority to be established, is going to require God subduing and humbling mankind so that human beings are ready to submit to God because human nature is stubborn and is proven rebellious against God. And so God is going to have to deal with human beings in very direct ways to humble them and to bring them under submission, to bring them to the point where they're ready to submit and yield to God's authority. And that also is part of what is accomplished or what is pictured as being accomplished by the Feast of Trumpets is the judging and humbling of the nations as God sits about to judge them. And we read a number of prophecies about that, one of them here in Jeremiah 25 and verse 15. Jeremiah 25 and verse 15. For thus says the Lord God of Israel to me, take this wine cup of fury from my hand and cause all the nations to whom I send you to drink it. So this symbolically is a cup which Jeremiah is told to take to the nations and they will have to drink it. And it says in verse 16, they will drink and stagger and go mad because of the sword that I will send among them. So this cup is symbolic of a sword of war coming upon these nations. Then I took the cup from the Lord's hand and made all the nations drink to whom the Lord had sent me. And we'll see that 
the nations include all the nations of the earth that will have to drink of this cup. In verse 18, Jerusalem, the cities of Judah, its kings and its princes, to make them a desolation and astonishment, a hissing and a curse as it is this day. Pharaoh, king of Egypt, his servants, his princes, and all his people, all the mixed multitude, all kings of the land of Uz, all the kings of the land of the Philistines, namely Ashkelon, Gaza, Ekron, and the remnant of Ashdod, Edom, Moab, and the peoples of Ammon, all the kings of Tyre, all the kings of Sidon, all the kings of the coastlands which are across the sea, Dedan, Tema, Buz, and all who are in the furthest corners, all the kings of Arabia and the kings of the mixed multitude who dwell in the desert, all the kings of Zimri, all the kings of Elam, the kings of the Medes, all the kings of the north, far and near, one with another, and all the kingdoms of the world which are on the face of the earth. Also the king of Shishak, which will drink after them. So this is talking about a sword which will come to all places on the earth, all kingdoms, all nations will be affected by what is prophesied here. Therefore you shall say to them, Thus says the Lord God of hosts, the God of Israel, Drink, be drunk, and vomit. Fall and rise no more because of the sword that I will send among you. And it shall be if they refuse to take the cup from your hand to drink, then you shall say to them, Thus says the Lord of hosts, You shall certainly drink. For behold, I begin to bring calamity on the city which is called by my name. And should you be utterly unpunished, this outbreak of devastation and war will begin with Judah and Jerusalem and the people of Israel. But it is going to affect all mankind eventually. And the Bible speaks of it as a great tribulation, which will primarily affect Judah and Israel in the beginning. But on the heels of that tribulation will be what is called the day of the Lord, where God will send punishment on all mankind. And much of that will consist of wars, which will occur among the nations. And God goes on to say in verse 29, You shall not be unpunished, for I will call for a sword on all the inhabitants of the earth, says the Lord of hosts. Therefore prophesy against them all these words, and say to them, The Lord will roar from on high and utter his voice from his holy habitation. He will roar mightily against his foe. He will give a shout as those who tread the grapes against all the inhabitants of the earth. A noise will come to the ends of the earth, for the Lord has a controversy with the nations. He will plead his case with all flesh. He will give those who are wicked to the sword, says the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, disaster shall go forth from nation to nation, and a great whirlwind shall be raised up from the furthest parts of the earth. And at that day, the slain of the Lord shall be from one end of the earth, even to the other end of the earth. They shall not be lamented or gathered or buried, and they shall become refuse on the ground. Now, this period of calamities and warfare, which will last, as other scriptures tell us, 
for three and a half years will culminate with the coming of Jesus Christ. And at His coming, He is going to directly execute judgment on peoples all over the face of the earth. And it says, the slain of the Lord shall be from one end of the earth to the other. Now this may not be pleasant to think about. It's not pleasant. It's horrifying to think about what is going to happen. But this is necessary for Jesus Christ to get matters in hand so that he can begin to administer justice on the earth and establish peace among nations. But this is part of what is symbolized by the Feast of Trumpets. In many scriptures, it tells us about prior to Christ's coming, the various wars that will break out and finally the gathering of nations from all over the earth to the Middle East for the climactic battle in a whole series of wars which will come upon the earth during the last three and a half years prior to Christ's coming. Over in Revelation chapter 9, we read about part of that, preparation for the final great climactic battle, Revelation 9. And verse 14, it says, in verse 13, it says, The sixth angel sounded. Now, we mentioned earlier there's a series of trumpets, and the final trumpet that signals the return of Jesus Christ is the seventh trumpet. But here in this series, we read about the sixth trumpet. It says, The sixth angel sounded, and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar, which is before God, saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, Release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. So the four angels who had been prepared for the hour and the day and the month and the year uh, were released to kill a third of mankind. Now the number of the army of horsemen was 200 million. I heard the number of them. And so here is a massive army of a greater army than has ever been assembled at any time in history. For comparison's sake, for example, when the Germans invaded the Soviet Union in 1940, I believe it was, they had an army of about three million assembled at that time. Now, over the course of World War II, there were many more millions of Germans, probably at least six million or more, who served in the armies or the armed services of Germany at one time or another during that war. When the Russians came into Germany toward the end of the war, there were six million Russians, and many millions of Russians had already been killed prior to that time. So if you take both sides, the Germans and the Russians during World War II, you might have had maybe a total of less than 20 million. That doesn't count the other Allied armies, and the Japanese and so forth. But here is one army assembled from the nations of the East, one number, 200 million people coming across the Euphrates, that is, from the east to the west, and they will be invading various countries as they come across to fight the armies of the west. And this is part of what will lead up to the final end-time battle, which is 
discussed in various prophecies. One of them being over in Joel 3, which speaks of this massive invasion from the east in Joel 3. In Joel 3 and verse 1, it says, Behold, in those days and at that time, when I bring back the captives of Judah and Jerusalem, I will also gather all nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat, and I will enter into judgment with them there. Now notice that here we see that all nations, peoples from all over the earth, will be gathered to the Middle East. Now the valley of Jehoshaphat is in Jerusalem. It's also called the Kidron Valley. It's between the Temple Mount and the Mount of Olives. And Jehoshaphat means judged of the eternal, or the eternal is judge. And this valley and the designation it is given here, the Valley of Jehoshaphat, has to do with the fact that this is going to be the focal point of the final end-time battle. Now, as we've seen, Jesus Christ is going to be fighting and bringing destruction on people all over the face of the earth. But there will be a final culminating battle that will be focused and centered in Jerusalem and civically focused in the Valley of Jehoshaphat. In verse 9, it says, Proclaim this among the nations, prepare for war. Wake up the mighty men. Let all the men of war draw near. Let them come up. Beat your plowshares into swords and your printing hooks into spears. Let the weak say, I'm strong. Assemble and come, all you nations, and gather together all around Cause your mighty ones to go down there, O Lord. Let the nations be wakened and come to the valley of Jehoshaphat, for there I will sit to judge all the surrounding nations. Put in the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Come and go down, for the winepress is full. The vats overflow, for their wickedness is great. Now, the reason God is doing this is is to bring judgment on the nations for their rebellion and their wickedness and their unwillingness to submit to his laws. And notice how it's compared to a wine press. Now, a wine press, of course, is made to crush the juice out of grapes. And this carnage that will occur is compared to it's likened to the wine press when the juice is pressed out of the grapes. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision, for the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. The sun and moon will grow dark, and the stars will diminish their brightness. The Lord will roar from Zion and utter his voice from Jerusalem. The heavens and the earth will shake, but the Lord will be a shelter for his people and the strength of the children of Israel. One of the reasons that Jesus Christ will intervene in, in this manner at that time is to save the remnant of Judah and Israel from utter destruction and to save the rest of mankind as well. And then in verse 17 it says, So shall you know that I am the Lord your God, dwelling in Zion, my holy mountain. Then Jerusalem shall be holy, and no alien shall ever pass through her again. Jerusalem is perhaps the most fought-over city 
on the face of the earth historically. There have been numerous times when Jerusalem has been the scene of war and conflict. I counted them up, and at one time, I believe I counted at least 28 major battles that had been fought in the city of Jerusalem. There may be more than that, and there are other cities that have been fought over as well, but I don't know of any city or place on the face of the earth that has been the scene of greater conflict and war than Jerusalem. It's interesting because Jerusalem means the city of peace, but historically it has been anything but a city of peace. But when Jesus Christ establishes his throne there, it will become the city of peace after being the scene of a calamitous climactic battle involving all nations. But then from that point on, it says no alien shall ever pass through her again. That will be the end of warfare as far as Jerusalem is concerned. At no time in the future will God allow Jerusalem again to become a scene of battle. Now it will be attacked subsequent to that. There are other prophecies that show that there will be even yet after this time that's spoken about here in this chapter other attacks aimed at Jerusalem but they will not get to the point where they will actually get into the city the armies that attack Jerusalem will be destroyed before they get there but the focal point of this final climactic battle when Jesus Christ sets his feet on the Mount of Olives at his return will be in Jerusalem in the Valley of Jehoshaphat, but the battle will rage throughout the length and breadth of Palestine. Over in Revelation 14 and verse 20, where it, it is talking about the execution of God's judgment at the return of Jesus Christ. That is what Revelation 14 is about. And here in Revelation 14, verse 20, it says the winepress, now notice how this is referred to here as a winepress, which we already discussed what that implies. The winepress was trampled outside the city and blood came out of the winepress up to the horse's bridles for 1,600 furlongs. In the Greek, it's stadios, which is a word for the equivalent of an English furlong, a, a Roman stadia. And 1,600 stadia was equivalent to 200 Roman miles, which were shorter than our modern mile. But in modern miles, it would be about 184 miles, which is roughly the length of Palestine, the length of ancient Israel proper from the south to the north. So what this is talking about is we read elsewhere that there will be a massive army, armies assembled at Armageddon, which is in the north extremity of ancient Israel, then they will attack toward Jerusalem. The scene of this battle is going to be all over Palestine, but it will be focused 
primarily in Jerusalem and even more specifically in the Valley of Jehoshaphat, which was just, as I said, just east of the Temple Mount. It says that blood will come out of the wine press up to the horse's bridles. That's how deep the blood will be in some areas. It doesn't necessarily mean it will be that deep the entire length and breadth of Palestine, but in some areas, probably especially the Valley of Jehoshaphat, the number of people slain will be so great that the blood will literally be up to about this height. This will be a massive battle and a bloody battle that will be won by Jesus Christ over the armies of the nations of the entire earth coming to make war and even make war on God. And as Jesus Christ returns, armies will be converging in the area from across the Euphrates and elsewhere, converging on Jerusalem. We read about that in Revelation 16, verse 12. It says, The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its water was dried up so that the way of the kings from the east might be prepared. And I saw three unclean spirits like frogs coming out of the mouth of the dragon, out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet. For they are the spirits of demons performing signs which go out to the kings of the earth and of the whole world to gather them to the battle of that great day of God Almighty. This assemblage of peoples will be occurring even as Jesus returns. It will probably precede that somewhat, but will continue until the battle is finished, until the armies are exhausted. And we're not told exactly how long the battle will last, but it won't be very long, but it will be probably at least several days. And by the way, Jesus won't be up in heaven getting married at that time. He will be busy on the earth taking care of business. Judah we're told, will be saved before Jerusalem. Now, obviously, since Jerusalem is going to be the scene of the battle and then, and then it will occur throughout Palestine, it will affect the entire Jewish nation, modern nation of Israel, and they will all be threatened with annihilation. Many will have already been killed and taken into captivity, but there will still be others left whose lives will be threatened by this war. And notice what we read about that in Zechariah chapter 12. Zechariah 12 verse 1. The burden of the word of the Lord against Israel. Thus says the Lord who stretches out the heavens, lays the foundation of the earth, and forms the spirit of man within him. Behold, I will make Jerusalem a cup of drunkenness to all the surrounding peoples when they lay siege against Judah and Jerusalem. And it shall happen in that day that I will make Jerusalem a very heavy stone for all peoples. All who would heave it away will surely be cut in pieces, though all nations of the earth are gathered against it. In that day, says the Lord, I will strike every horse with confusion and its rider with madness. I will open my eyes on the house of Judah and will strike every horse of the peoples with blindness. And the governors of Judah shall say in their heart, the inhabitants of Jerusalem are my strength and the Lord of hosts, their God. In that day I will make the governors of Judah like a firepan in the woodpile and like a fiery torch in the sheaves. 
They shall devour all the surrounding peoples on the right hand and on the left, but Jerusalem shall be inhabited again in her own place, Jerusalem. The Lord will save the tents of Judah first. So the Jewish people will be directly involved in this battle, but they will need God's help to prevail. And it says the Lord will save the tents of Judah first so that the glory of the house of David and the glory of the inhabitants of Jerusalem shall not become greater than that of Judah. In that day, the Lord will defend the inhabitants of Jerusalem. The one who is feeble among them in that day shall be like David, and the house of David shall be like God, like the angel of the Lord before them. And it shall be in that day that I will seek to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. So Jesus Christ is coming, and he will execute judgment over the earth as he returns, and many will be slain, and he will finally come to Jerusalem and set his feet down on the Mount of Olives and defend the people of Judah and Jerusalem. It says he'll save Judah first, though. And he'll take care of business there and then wind up finally in Jerusalem. Now, Jesus, when he ascended after his resurrection, he spent some time among his disciples on the earth for about 40 days, but then he ascended to heaven to be with the Father and remain there until his second coming. But here in Acts chapter 1, we read about him ascending into heaven after that 40-day period or at the end of it. And in Acts chapter 1 and verse 9, it says, Now when he had spoken these things, while they watched he was taken up, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven, as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, who also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus who is taken up from you into heaven will so come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. So Jesus Christ is going to come back the same way he left. And then in verse 12 it says, They returned to Jerusalem from the mount called, called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey. The Mount of Olives is across the Kidron Valley from the Temple Mount. And that's where Jesus was when he ascended. That's where he's going to come back to. And he's going to come back, as it says, in the same manner. He's going to come back in a cloud. And he will set feet, once again, we're told, on the Mount of Olives. In Psalm 97, he will be fighting his enemies as he returns. We read about that in Psalm 97, beginning with verse 1. Psalm 97 and verse 1. The Lord reigns. 
Let the earth rejoice, let the multitude of isles be glad. So this is speaking of the time when Christ will come to reign. And says, clouds and darkness surround him. Notice he is surrounded by clouds as he returns. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. A fire goes before him and burns up his enemies round about. So notice that as Jesus Christ returns, there will be fire and destruction coming with his return. His lightnings light the world, the earth sees and trembles. The mountains melt like wax at the presence of the Lord, at the presence of the Lord of the whole earth. The heavens declare his righteousness and all people see his glory. And then in Isaiah 34, Isaiah 34, we read more about Christ's coming as it relates to his victory over his enemies. Isaiah 34 and verse 1 Come near you nations to hear and heed you people. Let the earth hear and all that is in it the world and all things that come forth from it. For the indignation of the Lord is against all nations and his fury against all their armies. He has utterly destroyed them. He has given them over to the slaughter. Also their slain shall be thrown out. Their stench shall rise from their corpses and the mountain shall be melted with their blood. All the host of heaven shall be dissolved, and all the heavens shall be rolled up like a scroll. All the hosts shall fall down as the leaf falls from the vine, as the fruit falling from a fig tree. For my sword shall be bathed in heaven. Indeed, it shall come down on Edom and all the people of my curse for judgment. Verse 8, for it is the day of the Lord's vengeance the year of recompense for the cause of Zion. And in Zechariah chapter 14, Zechariah 14 and verse 1, Behold, the day of the Lord is coming, and your spoil shall be divided in your midst, for I will gather all the nations to battle against Jerusalem. The city shall be taken, the houses rifled, and the women ravished. Half the city shall go into captivity, but the remnant of the people shall not be cut off from the city. So half of the people of Jerusalem will have been taken into captivity, but the other half will have be left. And then the Lord shall go forth and fight against those nations as he fights in the day of battle. And in that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which faces Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east and west. There will be a massive earthquake as Christ returns and his feet stands in the Mount of Olives and the Mount of Olives will be split in two. And it says it will make a very large valley. Half the mountain shall move toward the north and half toward the south. Then you shall flee through my mountain valley. For the mountain valley shall reach to Azal. Yes, you shall flee as you fled from the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. Thus the Lord my God will come and all the saints with you. So at the return of Jesus, the mountain will be split in two, making a way of escape for people of Jerusalem who are left alive. And Christ will fight there, as it says, to defend Jerusalem. And then in verse 9, it says, The Lord shall be king over all the earth in that day. 
it shall be the Lord is one and his name one. Verse 11, it goes on to say, and people shall dwell in it, no longer there shall, shall there be utter destruction, but Jerusalem shall be safely inhabited. And this shall be the plague with which the Lord will strike all the people who fought against Jerusalem. Their flesh shall dissolve while they stand on their feet. Their eyes shall dissolve in their sockets, and their tongues shall be dissolved in their mouths. And it shall come to pass on that day that a great panic from the Lord will be among them. Everyone will seize the hand of his neighbor and raise his hand against his neighbor's hand. Judah also will fight at Jerusalem, and the wealth of all the surrounding nations shall be gathered together, gold and silver and apparel in great abundance. Such also shall be the plague on the horse and the mule, the camel, the donkey, the cattle that will be in, the, in their camps. So shall this, this plague be, and it shall come to pass that everyone who is left of all the nations which came up against Jerusalem shall go up year to year to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. So those who are left alive of the nations will then turn to God after they've been subdued and they will learn to worship God. And at that time, immediately on the heels of his return, Jesus Christ will set his hand to restore Israel and the people of Judah to their homeland. And he will bring them out of captivity. And he will restore peace to the earth. And as we've read here already, all nations will then have been subdued and humbled and be prepared to worship God, the true God. Over in Isaiah 66, Isaiah 66 and verse 5, it says, Hear the word of the Lord, you who tremble at his word. Your brethren who hated you cast you out for my name's sake. Let the Lord be glorified that we may see your joy, but they shall be ashamed. The sound of noise from the city, a voice from the temple, a voice, the voice of the Lord who fully repays his enemies. Before she was in labor, she gave birth. Before her pain came, she delivered a male child. Who has heard of such a thing? Who has seen such things? Shall the earth be made to give birth in one day? Or shall a nation be born at once? For as soon as Zion was in labor, she gave birth to her children. Shall I bring to the time of birth and not cause delivery, says the Lord? Shall I who cause delivery shut up the womb, says your God? Speaking metaphorically here of the restoration of Israel and their conversion. And it goes on to say, Rejoice with Jerusalem. Be glad with her, all you who love her. Rejoice for joy with her, all you who mourn for her, that you may feed and be satisfied with the consolation of her bosom, that you may drink deeply and be delighted with the abundance of her glory. For thus says the Lord, Behold, I will extend peace to her like a river, and the glory of the Gentiles like a flowing stream. And then you shall feed on her side, shall you be carried, and be dandled on her knees, as one whom his mother comforts, so I will comfort you, and you shall be comforted, Jerusalem. So after the calamities and the punishment is over, then 
Christ is going to comfort those who are left, especially beginning with Judah and Israel. And says, when you see this, your heart shall rejoice and your bones shall flourish like grass. The hand of the Lord shall be known to his servants and his indignation to his enemies. For behold, the Lord will come with fire and with his chariots like a whirlwind to render his anger with fury and his rebuke with flames of fire. For by fire and by his sword, the Lord will judge all flesh and the slain of the Lord shall be many those who sanctify themselves and purify themselves to go to the gardens after an idol in the midst, eating swine's flesh, and the abomination and the mouse, mouse shall be consumed together. But then it goes on to say that I know their works, verse 18, and their thoughts. It shall be that I will gather all nations and tongues, and they shall come and see my glory. And I will set a sign among them. Those who escape, I will send to the nations, to Tarshish, to Pool, to Lud, who draw the bow, to Tubal and Javan, the coastlands afar off who have not heard my fame nor seen my glory, and they shall declare my glory among the Gentiles. God is going to send people all over the earth to bring his word to the nations, and that will be perhaps some who are resurrected, perhaps it will be some of the physical Israelites and Levites and others that will be sent out to be emissaries to the Gentile nations. But eventually, and this will take a little time, but God's word will be taken to the nations of the earth. And it says, Verse 20, they shall bring all your brethren for an offering of the Lord out of all the nations in horses, chariots, and in litters on mules and camels to my holy mountain Jerusalem, says the Lord. As the children of Israel bring an offering in a clean vessel to the house of the Lord, and I will take some of them for priests and Levites. For as the new heavens and the new earth which I will make shall remain before me, says the Lord, so shall your descendants in your name remain. And it shall come to pass that from one new moon to another, from one Sabbath to another, all flesh shall come to worship before me, says the Lord. And they shall go forth and look upon the corpses of the men who have transgressed against me, for their worm does not die and their fire is not quenched, and they shall be an abhorrence to all flesh." So Christ is going to restore Israel and Jerusalem, restore the nations, give them instructions through his word, and they will come and worship him. And they will have the testimony of what has occurred as a witness concerning what happens as a consequence of disobedience and rebellion against God. Those who have been faithful in this age will be resurrected at the time of Jesus' second coming, time of the seventh trumpet. They will be resurrected in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. It talks about the resurrection and in, in verse 23 it says, 
1 Corinthians 15, verse 23, it says, verse 22, it says, As in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive, but each one in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, afterward those who are Christ at his coming. And at that time, the time of his coming, the saints will be resurrected. In Matthew 24, it tells us more about that. Matthew 24 and verse 30, it says, Then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, for they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send his angels with a great sound of a trumpet, and they will gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. So the people will be resurrected all over the earth, and uh, the angels will gather them together. And as we're told elsewhere, they will meet Christ in the air. And they will fight with Christ as he makes war on his enemies. In Psalm 149, Psalm 149 and verse 5, it says, Let the saints be joyful in glory. Let them sing aloud on their beds. Let the high praises of God be in their mouth and a two-edged sword in their hand to execute vengeance on the nations and punishments on the people to bind their kings with chains and their nobles with fetters of iron to execute on them the written judgment. This honor have all his saints. And they will be with Christ at the time of his return, after meeting him in the air to be a part of his army. Tells us more about that in Revelation 19 and verse 11. It says, I saw heaven open and behold a white horse and he who sat on him was called faithful and true in righteousness. He judges and makes war. And it goes on to speak of this person who is Jesus Christ goes on in verse 12, says, His eyes were like a flame of fire, and his head were many crowns, and he had a name written that no one knew except himself. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies in heaven clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, that with it he should strike the nations." And he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. So Jesus Christ will lead his armies. And he has on, this, on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of kings, Lord of lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried with a loud voice, saying to all the birds that fly in the midst of heaven, Come and gather together for the supper of the great God, that you may eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and those who sit on them, the flesh of all people, free and slaves, small and great. And then in verse 19 it says, I saw the beast, the kings of the earth, and the armies gathered together to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army, which will include the resurrected saints and then they will be defeated by Christ and his army. And then 
the saints, having been resurrected, will possess the kingdom with Jesus Christ, who will be ruling over the earth. And they will rule with Christ as kings and priests over the earth. In Daniel 7, we read a prophecy about that kingdom and the saints' part in it. In Daniel 7 and verse 20, it says, The ten horns that were on its head, speaking of the beast, and the other horn which came up before which three fell, namely the horn which had eyes and a mouth which spoke pompous words, whose appearance was greater than his fellows, I was watching, and the same horn was making war against the saints and prevailing against them. So this is talking about the persecution of God's church, God's people down through the ages, and especially toward the end of this age. But notice it says that this horn who persecutes God's people will prevail against them until, verse 22, the Ancient of Days came. And a judgment was made in favor of the saints of the Most High, and the time came for the saints to possess the kingdom. So the saints will possess the kingdom. And then it goes on to mention further about this in verse 25. He shall speak pompous words against the Most High, shall persecute the saints of the Most High, and shall intend to change times and laws, and the saints shall be given into his hand for time and times and half a time. But the court shall be seated, and thou shalt take away his dominion to consume and destroy it forever. And then the kingdom and dominion and greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people, the saints of the Most High. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and all dominion shall serve and obey him. So it won't be just Christ himself who will be given authority over the nations. It will be the saints who will be ruling with Christ as well. This is also mentioned elsewhere, one of those places being in Revelation chapter 1. And in Revelation 1, in verse 5, it says, From Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood, and has made us kings and priests to God, and to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. So we will be with Christ as kings and priests if we are in that res resurrection, and the kingdom will belong to Christ and his servants. God tells us that for our faithfulness, there will be rewards. There will be rewards in this life because of the natural blessings that proceed from obedience to God's laws, living his way of life, as well as the extra blessings that God gives us as a consequence of obeying him along with trials and tribulation. But the main rewards for obedience to God will come later. And those rewards, we're told, Jesus Christ will bring with him. When Jesus Christ comes to 
administer judgment, it will not be just punishment on his enemies, but he will come also to reward the saints, and he will bring that reward with him. We won't have to go up to heaven to get it. He'll bring it with him. As it says in Revelation 22 and verse 12, Behold, I am coming quickly, and my reward is with me to give to everyone according to his work. And so if our works are pleasing to God, then we will be rewarded accordingly. It's very important that we keep in mind the lessons and the prophecies associated with the Feast of Trumpets. Because these events are real, they are prophesied to happen, and they involve each of us directly. So we need to not only be aware of what's coming, we need to be prepared for it. And of course, one of the ways that we can prepare for it, be prepared, is by being aware of it, being aware of what's prophesied. Understand what Jesus Christ is going to do in the future and why he's going to do it and where we fit in. We need to be making sure that we're ready when that day comes. So we need to focus on these things. Think about what God has in store for us, the lessons that are associated with the Feast of Trumpets so that we can be prepared when these things occur.